Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, well, good afternoon, Sharon. How are you doing just coming back from the beach, Jeremy? Great. The beach was wonderful, you know. We social distanced on the beach and took the kids and they social distanced away from us. It was amazing. Oh, that's even better. <laughs> so did you wear your mask out on the beach? I did not wear my mask on the beach. Well, I thought uh, you were going to have a matching mask and Speedo. Oh, there you go. I like that idea. That's uh, might start a new trend here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not asking which would have to have more cloth. <laughs> we'll leave that one alone, Sharon. Leave that alone. Well, we have, uh, we have a pretty special guest in the house with us today, a uh, remote house, I guess that is. And we have Mr. Randy Moore, the CEO of the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. Welcome, Randy. Oh, it's a pleasure to join you again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, we love having you on. Uh, you always have wonderful topics, and actually, this one was your idea, Randy. You you kind of came up with this topic, and uh, we're very happy uh, to do this show today with you. So we're going to be talking today about COVID nineteen, one of our favorite topics as of late, and healthcare. And then Randy's put together ten predictions for the next twelve months. So Randy, why don't you uh, just kind of kick us off with how you started this idea? Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. So I've been spending, obviously, a lot of time trying to understand where we're going to be 12 months from now and how it's going to impact the members, right, and other healthcare professionals and, and just, the, I would say, you know, this country. And I've been spending a lot of time trying to understand where things are going. Obviously, this is, this, there is no playbook here, right? This is our, our first and hopefully last global pandemic. And it's really important to understand there's, there's, there's still a lot about this disease that we don't know. And, and we don't really know how this is going to play out. But I think it's, there's enough information here, I think, out right now that we can make some pretty informed assumptions about where things are going to go, uh, particularly in, in healthcare and the uh, perioperative environment as well. So this is my attempt to try to put some things together so, one, so I can think about this strategically over a longer-term uh, perspective and, two, help, help the rest of the association thinking that way as well. Well, I'm thinking that a year from now, we need to revisit all of this and see how yeah. your predictions panned <laughs> out. I think that'd be pretty cool. Hey, well, Randy, let's see. Let's uh, see. Uh, only if I'm more right than wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Randy, I just hope you're better than the guys who try to predict where the stock market is going and, yeah. the, and the folks who try to predict the weather. If you're better yeah. than both of them, <laughs> you're in like Flynn, you're golden. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably in a better I'm more comfortable in my predictions than I am. Uh, yeah, I think I am too. I think I am too. Well, the first one that you, you talked about was the impact of unemployment. 
on healthcare delivery and, and reimbursement. Why don't you just kind of lead us down that path first? Sure. So you think right now we have somewhere around 40 million Americans who are out of work now that were not out of work 10 weeks ago. And that, I mean, that's great depression levels of, of unemployment that have hit in a very compressed timeline. And beyond just the, the devastating impact that has on, on them and their families and the economy, we have to understand what does that mean in terms of healthcare delivery. And so there's 40 million people right now. Some of them may, may have COBRA or may have the ability to get insurance from, from their spouse or someone else. But I think a pretty high percentage of those folks are now moving into the Medicaid system or, or no pay. And, and what's going to be the impact on healthcare providers, including nurse anesthetists, and hospitals when they take care of these patients who may have uh, no insurance or will have Medicaid, which we know reimburses pennies on the dollar. And so that's one of those things that's not getting a lot of attention that I see. We're obviously, we're talking about the economic impact to healthcare providers and institutions because of the declining or because of the cessation of elective surgery. What's that going to do relative to reimbursement? And I think it's going to have a profound impact, particularly in the near term. Randy, do you think this kind of leads us further down the path to a one-payer system, given some of the things you're talking about? That's a great question. And I, I think the answer is, if you would have asked me that question 10 weeks ago, I would have said definitively, no, right? So Joe Biden is the presumptive candidate. He has, he's a, he has what many people would characterize as a moderate position on health care, right. meaning he wants to improve and expand Obamacare, was not open to any provocative action similar to what maybe Elizabeth Warren uh, or uh, Bernie Sanders were, were proposing. Now, what I'm hearing and reading is that his camp may be moving on this, maybe may moving towards a more aggressive uh, policy posture, including healthcare. Having said that, we have a very unique system in this country, and there is a lot of money, corporate money in healthcare. Yep. If there is a President Biden, for him to move his healthcare agenda, he needs the support of Congress. And I think it's going to be a really tough road to hope to try to completely redesign healthcare in a way that would uh, adversely impact corporate dollars. It's there's just too entrenched. They're too entrenched, and there's too much money. So I'm not overly optimistic that we'll be moving towards a one-payer system, even in a post-COVID world. But it definitely energizes that that conversation in a way that would not have been energized without COVID-19. Well, as the state economies are crumbling all across the country and, you know, it's a system where the, the states have to pay a portion of Medicaid also, mm-hmm. and you're saying we're going to probably go towards more Medicaid. How is all of that going to work together? This is a pretty scary situation and that, you know, I'm, I'm in Illinois right now and, it, and it's no... Uh, probably no surprise that Illinois was in a pretty tough financial position before COVID-19. California is circling the drain financially. And we're not the only two states that are struggling. If you look at the fact that their their tax revenue has dissipated, they're hemorrhaging cash through unemployment, uh, hemorrhaging money in paying for COVID-related supplies. And it's really ugly. And so it's going to be Really important, whether you're, whether you're a D or an R, uh, you should be watching what's going to be coming out of Congress in the next two months and, and whether or not Congress is going to provide federal stimulus to states. If they don't, prepare for catastrophic economic situation in many states, including the prospect of bankruptcy. And 
exploring how they can cut costs. And that means services and mm-hmm. including healthcare and in some cases, healthcare providers. So that's one of those things that we need to be watching very closely and, and understand what the impact is going to be to not only nurse anesthetists, but to the, to the system as a whole. Yeah. I mean, I think that's going to be a huge issue, Randy. I mean, you know, obviously we could probably spend the entire podcast talking about economics of COVID and, and the states and, and what's mm-hmm. going on in each state. And obviously the Republicans and the Democrats are going to fight this thing out as well. So, um, but th- there's another issue I think that has been brought up through this whole COVID situation. And that is one, a reliance on China and India and so forth for not only our drugs, but a lot of the ingredients that go into our drugs, which in turn is causing shortages. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, certainly. And this is one of those things, you know, the, the drugs supply chain is very inelastic, meaning there's not much that we can do to ramp up in the short period. And as you said, Jeremy, we're heavily reliant for many medications on China and not just medications, I mean, PPE uh, mm-hmm. and other equipment. Right. We should... Hopefully, we're going to have serious conversations about whether that makes sense for this country to put all of its eggs in the China basket when it comes to these vital supplies that we need to respond, we need to use to respond to a pandemic. And you think about the supply chain, and, and it, there is, this is one of those ones where I, I am quite concerned that, uh, especially if we see in the late summer or early fall, we start seeing second wa- a second wave, uh, will we have not only the supplies, but the pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. available to take care of these patients. And we know that critically ill COVID-19 patients consume a lot of medication, uh, particularly uh, if they're on the ventilator, requiring sedatives and paralytics and and, and antibiotics because they frequently have infections superimposed uh, on on the illness. So these are things that we need to be, we need to be planning for this like yesterday. Yeah, I actually, uh, we need to be prepared for it. I actually saw today that the uh, Trump administration, I believe, was trying to, I guess, persuade companies to bring their supply chains back and mm-hmm. even, uh, you know, mention the fact that they would help cover some of the costs, either through tax incentives or actually hard dollars, to get these companies to bring their supply chains back to the U.S. So it's going to be interesting how all this works out and, you know, how much uh, government money works in the background here. Um, mm-hmm. Well, let's let's explore this whole second wave that they predict will be coming. And so what's going to happen, you think, whenever that second wave hits us? From my reading, there, there are three models that are being presented as as possibilities in terms of uh, where this thing's going to go in the next year or so. I've not seen any modeling that indicates it's going away. So I, I would put that as much as we would like to see it go away. I think we're going to be living with COVID-19 for at least another year. So the panic, uh, the Spanish flu pandemic is an, an example, and it, it eerily mirrors where we're at in terms of uh, the first wave hit in March of 1918. They had a 20 to 30 percent decline uh, over the summer, and then, it, then there was a monster wave uh, that hit in the fall of 1918. That, that would be a situation in which regardless of the preparation that we put in now uh, and uh, all the resources that we would accumulate and all of that, it would still exhaust the uh, supplies and resources of of the healthcare system in this country. It would be truly catastrophic. Uh, The second model modeling that I'm seeing is where you're going to see the big spike in March 
right? And you're going to see it decline over summer. And then for the next year, you're going to see waves, continuous waves, not of the level that we experienced in March, but it's going to be here for a while. Mm -hmm. And there are going to be a lot more people, unfortunately, who are going to get sick and die. Uh, the third model that I've, you know, I've been re reviewing is we continue to have the waves, but they're going to be the same height as March, where mm -hmm. for a year plus, we're going to have the level of disease penetration in the community that is going to be profound. I'm hoping that option B, you know, is, is, is what we get uh, versus the Spanish flu and, and the third scenario. But I think right now we're engaged in a high stakes experiment, meaning States have closed uh, late or not closed at all or opening early. And you saw, I'm sure recently, if you looked at the news, you're seeing uh, people who are not necessarily socially distancing. Uh, and we're going to find out, I think, about three weeks what that means and, mm -hmm. and, and whether or not the predictions by the epidemiologists and the virologists and the scientists are right, or maybe they're not, or, or maybe they're different. So... That's something that I'm, I'm looking at very closely is trying to predict how this is going to impact the membership is what is the fall going to look like for us in this country? You know, I listen to a podcast on the coronavirus. I listen to all kinds of podcasts, but this one says that obviously the coronavirus will be talked about a century from now, but mm -hmm. yet why was the 1918 pandemic not really talked about so much and they said there were two reasons world war one was ending around the, uh, the same time where the second wave was coming through and you know they had been at war for four years and the other thing is the roaring 20s they had their huge economic boom right after that and then of course you know you had the fall uh, 1929. But they think that's why the whole thing just kind of got buried. You know, nobody ever talked about it. I mean, my grandparents would or would have lived through it, but mm -hmm. I never heard anything about it. So it'll be interesting to see. And it does illustrate, I think you're right, that shortly after the conclusion of this pandemic, that pandemic, which killed somewhere between 50 to 100 million people, people just Got up, just got on with their lives, and and it all but disappeared from. And mm -hmm. it wasn't until uh, many years later, in, when scientists really started to explore that pandemic and the impact that it had, did we fully appreciate just how catastrophic it was. Yeah. And so, we've come a long way for sure. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, I mean, that killed. If I remember right, it was like twenty five percent of the population of the world. I mm. think was killed um, from the yeah. Spanish flu. Well, and we haven't even really talked about, and I'm sure we'll get to this because I, I know a couple of your other bullet points, but, you know, what the effect of that might be on um, uh, your CRNA members and CRNA colleagues and so forth, because I think that's going to be an interesting point. You know, we're hearing from CRNAs all across the country, you know, that have either lost their job or, um, you know, they had to take time off or now, um, you know, I was talking to a chief CRNA today and because he's you know, part of the administration of the hospital, he had to take a 30% pay cut for the next 12 mm. months. So CRNAs are being impacted in a lot of different ways. Um, not only are they having to take different roles in the hospital, you know, financially, they're being impacted as well, which I know, you know, very um, intimately, Randy. So 
And and kind of leading into that, you know, there's a, there's also a mental health impact on healthcare providers um, out there, and I think that's going to be something that's going to need to be talked about as well. Yeah, this is one of those areas where the A and A has consistently demonstrated leadership, and uh, even before COVID nineteen, in terms of the resources that we provide our members uh, in uh, in the area of of health, you know, w- wellness and and, and well being, and we've really, I think during COVID-19 upped our game. And there's a lot of organizations that are looking to us and understanding how they can better support the members. We have nurse anesthetists and other healthcare providers in the trenches taking care of profoundly critically ill patients over a prolonged period of time. And, and we know that a, a shockingly high percentage of patients who require intubation and mechanical ventilation with COVID-19 don't come off the ventilator. And so you, you add that, that element of of death to it and, and all those other things, I think this is going to be one of those, it's going to be that, when you talk about waves, uh, this will be another wave. And I think we're going to be, mm-hmm. in terms of the impact on this, on the psychological impact of this disaster on healthcare providers is going to be significant. Well, you are military. What? How long do they predict PTSD after war or mm-hmm. anything like that? Is it six months, 12 months? And it's variable, right? Depending on the experiences that you had while you're deployed or the experiences you had before your deployment, your support system back home, your coping mechanisms, all of those things dictate uh, how you respond to a traumatic event. But think about the fact that we have members who are being traumatized in multiple ways over a prolonged period of time. And uh, that's something that we really need to be cognizant of. And, and the work that we're doing through advocacy is focused on that, and as well as the services that we're providing at the a and you know, the webinars that we're doing, uh, the, uh, the 24-hour helpline, all of those things are really help, focused on providing the best kind of assistance we can for our members during these difficult times. Now, have you seen an uptick in the usage of the 24-hour helpline, just out of curiosity? Yeah, I don't have the data at my fingertips, but I can say anecdotally, yes. Uh, that wow. based on what I'm hearing uh, from the staff is that, yeah, I mean, these, you look at what's happening because also we, that helpline is focused on providing assistance to folks who have substance abuse issues, right? So I think it's fair to assume that in this situation, and we're already seeing the literature come out and reports in the news about the amount of alcohol that's being consumed and the use yeah. of drugs. I think it's safe to assume whether we want to admit it or not, I think all professions are going to be dealing with that as well. Yeah. Well, I know here in North Carolina, even though all the bars and restaurants have been closed, alcohol sales has surged by 300%. Yeah. All crime has fallen except for DWIs. Yeah. Yeah. So. And unfortunately, we'll probably see more of that. Yeah. Mm. uh, Unfortunately. And, you know, speak going back to the, jobs and everything. Are, you think rural hospitals may close under some of the gravity of everything that's happening now? Yeah, so this is one of the, those things that I, I am very concerned about. Somewhere around 25% of hospitals in this country, which is about 350, are on the precipice of financial catastrophe. And uh, we're already seeing uh, rural hospitals close, and some of which will not reopen. And because, you know, there's pre-existing financial issues, right? Many of them are barely in the black or 
uh, in the red and have been so for a while. They don't have significant financial reserves like a John Hopkins or a Cleveland Clinic. So when you talk about disrupting their revenue, many of them have less than 30 days cash on hand. And then you eliminate 85% of their revenue because you've stopped elective surgeries and other elective care. Uh, it's going to be really difficult for them to stay open. Now, a couple of things have happened. Uh, one, the federal government has been putting money into the system uh, through the CARES Act to help support some of these hospitals. And uh, there's a resumption of elective surgeries. The challenge here is not enough money is getting to these hospitals. And two, the resumption of elective surgeries is not a snapback. It's not, we're not at pre-COVID levels and we're probably not going to be at pre-COVID levels for at least six months, maybe a year. So there is a real possibility that we're going to start to see hospital deserts in this country where folks in rural and underserved areas are going to have to travel pretty far uh, just to get basic medical care. And we also know uh, that the predominant anesthesia providers in those communities are nurse anesthetists, right? So yeah. we're going to see, unfortunately, I think, nurse anesthetists displaced uh, because of hospital closures, many of which will be permanent, unfortunately. Randy, I had no idea that it was uh, 25% of the hospitals out there. I mean, that's, uh, that's a sobering statistic there for sure. And you, also, if you think about those hospitals in those communities are the economic engine of the community. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Now, so, do you think that these bigger conglomerates will eat them up or just buy them and close them? There, there's both. Both of those things are going and, and are going on, uh, and that will accelerate. And I think those, those small hospitals or those rural hospitals or those community-based hospitals are, are definitely targets for acquisition. And in some cases, those health systems will acquire those hospitals to close them. And mm -hmm. so they can divert those services right. to uh, the, the larger facilities within the system. The hospitals, there are still a lot of hospitals struggling to remain independent, right? They don't want to be amalgamated into a larger health system for a variety of different reasons. Those hospitals are going to increasingly struggle with, in maintaining their independence. And uh, they're going to have to make some difficult decisions about whether or not they want to merge or whether or not anyone even wants to buy them. And so those, th those are those, you know, those things that are going to play out in a big way in the coming months uh, and years after this. And, and this is one of those things where the impact of COVID-19 is going to uh, outlast just the immediate impact in terms of the people who are going to get sick. The, 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 the system will be profoundly impacted, I think, forever. Well, you know, Randy, it's, it's interesting because anytime there's a crisis or an episode like this, there's always winners and losers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, in this scenario, I think one of the winners has been an increased use of telehealth. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I think I read a statistic that prior to COVID, it was less than 20%. And um, it'll be interesting to see what, what happens on the back end of this. I think this is one of those areas where, and we'll probably talk about some other areas, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. And, and, and in difficult situations, sometimes positive things, almost always positive things come out, right? Right. I think we've probably in the last 10 weeks moved 10 years into the future with telehealth. I think it's going to be very difficult uh, for payers, whether they're federal or commercial, to back off uh, the reimbursement uh, that they're providing now for telemedicine or telehealth. And the federal government, and I mean, I've had conversations as recently as uh, the last week or so with the number two in HHS. And he was very clear that he felt as though the agency has a really important role in, in removing barriers for the full uh, reimbursement of telehealth. 
So that's one of those areas that I'd watch very closely. I think it's going to proliferate and I think it's going to impact us too. I think we're going to be more and more inclined to seek our care through a virtual environment. And it's one of those things that I would watch very closely in terms of growth opportunities in healthcare. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, I think so many people have become so accustomed to just in the last couple of months of utilizing technology to hold meetings to, I mean, do do fundraisers. I mean, there's so many different things. And even, even our more seasoned folks out there have been able to embrace this technology. And I think it, as it becomes easier and easier, you're right, I think we definitely see more and more of this. And I think there's going to be other uses that we might not have even thought about yet. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to use this technology, um, which in a way I think is is great. You know, it does kind of remove some of the human element of it, but, you know, yet and still it takes and saves money and it saves time. And, um, you know, in this case, if you're not having to go to the doctor's office and be exposed to everybody else who's sick, I mean, obviously that's a good thing as well. So I think there, you're right. There, There's going to be lots more positive that come out of this. And sometimes it's just hard to see the forest for the trees. Yeah. And, and that's one of those things where you, you look at the level of innovation and growth that's occurring because of COVID-19. And I know this isn't really necessarily directly related to healthcare, but you think of the virtual work environment. Yes. I, I can tell you my thinking has changed in the last 10 weeks yeah. about virtual work. I think that there's a lot of companies a lot of organizations that are going to make some big moves in terms of how they can leverage a virtual workforce in ways that they would not have uh, done if it wasn't for COVID-19. And I think it will be seismic. I think the impact will be seismic in this country. Randy, it made me think about you, you know, instead of working 15 to 18 hour days, now you can work 23 and sleep an hour. I mean, exactly. you can work there you go. And, I mean this, is, this is great for the membership, you know? Yeah, yeah that's, that's one of the risks with the virtual work environment. It's difficult to walk away. That's right. Especially that in is your true. In your bedroom right next to your bed. Uh, but, yeah. You know, it takes a lot of discipline, I think, to work from home that I'm not sure I would, I would have. My daughter is not going back to, to the office until October. They have already said wow. October mm-hmm. um, for them. But I saw something on the news the other day that a lot of companies have found that uh, production has gone up by 30% because you're not socializing. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of those things. Again, you know, think about how that's going to impact the way that we work together now and in the future. And uh, think about, talk about disruption. What's that going to do with to the commercial real estate market? <laughs> you know, I know that's, we're getting way outside of yeah. healthcare. Right. But it's going to be but yeah. uh, massively disruptive. That's just how these things work. And, and there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. Well, it's going to be a social experiment. I think about if you're isolated, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, all kinds of things can come out of that. Uh, people not socializing. I've always said that some of the reasons why the younger generation, they don't have conflict management skills because they just text each other on the phone. When when I was growing up, if you got in a fight with the neighbor's kid and you come in, you started whining to mama, she would say, go outside, don't come back in until you get it worked out. Yeah. And, and you had to look at each other. But when you don't have to look at each other, I think there's a whole other dynamic. <laughs> I think we can go down a lot of roads with that, Sharon, you know, the use of social media and bullying. I mean, there's all kinds of (laughs) ramifications to this for real. So I think there's just a huge social experiment with 
how we're going to deal with this as a society, not being connected with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's a whole other podcast. But let's, yes, it is. It is. It does fascinate me. Let's go back to talking about healthcare just a little bit as far as elective care. You know, I do office-based anesthesia and everything I do is pretty much elective. And where do you think that's going to, going to go going forward? And will it kick back in the gear? It seems to be where I'm working at. But Yeah, I, that, I think that's just the thing, Sharon. I think it's going to be a variable, I think it's depending on, on where you're at and, and the case mix and all of those things. What I, I'm comfortable saying is if you look at consumer behavior in other areas, uh, there's not a lot of people super jazzed about getting on airplanes or eating in crowded restaurants. I also think it's safe to assume there's a lot of people who are going to continue to defer elective care for a while until they are really confident that when they go into the hospital or the surgery center or the, or the doctor's office, they're not going to get be exposed to COVID-19. And the facilities that prepare accordingly, that they can demonstrate to their customer or patient base that, yes, if you come here and you have your elective surgery, you're going to be safe and we're going to take care of you and you're not going to walk out of COVID-19. Those facilities, I think, are going to win, are going to be more successful, and they need to be really communicative about it. I do think, however, if you look at it in aggregate, I would expect and I predict a sluggish 12 months on the elective medical care side as people grapple with whether or not they need their knee arthroscopy or whether or not they need their colonoscopy or, or, or other procedures, I think you're going to see it's going to take time for patients to become comfortable with that. Now, there's a whole host of uh, negative sequelae that are associated with that, including people who, who have uncontrolled diabetes, hypertension, or people who should have had a colonoscopy because uh, they have cancer risk and then they subsequently develop cancer. I mean, you, you can go down the road. That's another second wave. Right. If you will, that we need to watch closely. I would predict at least for the next six months and likely for 12 months, we're going to have a less than pre-COVID level of surgical volume. Yeah. Uh, to, uh, and that's going to impact the system for sure. Well, I agree with that. You know, my mother who's, you know, I won't say how old she is, she'll kill me, but, um, but you know, she's, she's put off going to have certain things done because she doesn't want to go out. She doesn't want to be around people. She doesn't want to sit in a waiting room somewhere. You know, she just doesn't feel comfortable. I mean, you know, we, we have her do the, the Walmart, you know, where you uh, go online and do the Walmart grocery order and drive it and pick it up. And she's like, well, what if the girl comes to my window? I'm like, we roll it down, just stand back from it, wear your mask. But, yeah. but pe- you're right, people are going to be scared. I, I think especially older individuals are, are going to really be slower. And, and typically, you know, those are the ones that, that, as I say, need more maintenance. They need more of these types of mm-hmm. um, scenarios and, and so forth to be done. Um, and I think you will see a lag from that. Um, Well, what about the monetary piece? I would think uh, because people have been out of work and, you know, usually you'll still have some kind of copay. I think it might be kind of the same thing that we saw whenever we first started getting high deductible plans. And people just, if you've got a deductible of like me, $10,000, well, I might just kind of wait for just a little little while longer to get something done if I don't feel like it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. Yeah, And then then you can extrapolate extrapolate that to to other people and and, and other scenarios. And I think it's going to be a challenge, you know, and and you're already seeing, if you want to talk specifically about anesthesia, 
uh, you're seeing just some disruption in the anesthesia uh, market recently. Uh, there was a huge acquisition where one company uh, acquired another one that was in distress. Uh, we're hearing about uh, another big player uh, who may be preparing itself for chapter 11 bankruptcy. And there's some, naturally there's some questions about that. It's like, well, how, how extended were you before yeah. COVID-19? Yeah. Uh, oh, that, right. I wasn't yeah, going to go it, there, Randy, but. <laughs> yeah. What was your liquidity there? Right. Yeah. But, but again, you know, if there are people or if there are companies and providers, individual CRNA providers uh, who are, are going to have to be prepared for the possibility of an anemic year. Yeah. And yeah. and what does that mean to them? And and what does that mean to healthcare? Well, I'm I'm just hoping that the CRNAs that are listening to this out there, Randy, is I, I, I talk about this all the time. I hope mm-hmm. they're utilizing this time to understand that they need to get their financial houses in order. And I know we've all had that conversation, but I just can't reiterate that enough. When when I talk to a CRNA who made three hundred and eighty thousand dollars last year and, um, you know, cannot afford to go four weeks without pay. In my mind, there's issues with that. You know, I think it's a good scenario for people to really take a look at what they've been doing and and is it working and are they doing the right things out there as well. So I won't get on my soapbox about that, but. Well, you you should though. (laughs) I mean, I mean, you're definitely right. I mean, that's one of those areas where there's a lot of us, I would include myself in this, but there's a lot of people in healthcare that thought that healthcare was recession proof. Yeah, and, and, and maybe it is, but it ain't pandemic proof. Right. There are people who are experiencing a lot of pain, and I, and it's not about lecturing people or telling them they're wrong or they screwed up. It's like, okay, you know, our members who are graduating from nurse anesthesia programs, how important is it for you to have that emergency fund? Uh, because yes. when it hits, it comes from sometimes it comes from nowhere. It comes out of nowhere. Absolutely. And so, I, that's hopefully we're going to learn from that and and realize that healthcare can be disrupted too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, again, back to our winners and losers scenario, you know, I think there's another big winner out of this, and that is commercial payers. Um, and, and you can elaborate this on even, you know, a deeper level than I can, Randy, but um, right now they're pretty flush with cash. They've got a lot of cash. And if you want to fill us in the reasoning behind that. Yeah. I mean, it's especially in an environment of capitation. But if you just think about, again, there's a rapid decline in elective medical care. And the premiums are still there, right? You're yeah. still paying your health insurance. Yeah, we didn't right? stop, so, did we? Yeah. So <laughs> I, I like to use United Healthcare as an example, and not in a negative way. United Healthcare is doing some amazing stuff. They're made, being very disruptive in healthcare, and in some ways, very positive uh, in a positive way. Uh, but think about United Healthcare, which is definitely on a aggressive growth posture. Now they are flush with cash, mm-hmm. right? Uh, even more, and they were flush with cash before COVID-19, they're even right. more. And if I was in their boardroom right now, I'd be having conversations about what could we do right now to exploit the environment around us? What companies are potential targets? Uh, what uh, moves in terms of products and services could we make right now to exploit the environment around us? And that's where I think we should be watching very closely what's happening in that market, particularly with United Healthcare and those other big carriers who are on an aggressive, uh, have an aggressive position in terms of growth. I also heard today, though, that they, um, I guess Congress, several congressmen are talking about the possibility of uh, health insurers maybe giving some of that money back to help hospitals come out of 
um, you know, the financial funk that they're in. So it'll be, yeah. it'll be such an interesting environment to see what happens with all this. I mean, back to Sharon's point, it is a huge experiment, not just socially, but financially as well. So, but right now you're right. They got the cash and they, they've got to figure mm. out what to do with it. Well, speaking of winners and losers, the big winner is our CRNAs right now. We with, hope it uh, is. Some we of the skull, <laughs> some <laughs> of the scope of practice things. I mean, I've been waiting 30 years to see this. Why don't we go ahead and elaborate on that just a little bit, Randy? Even with pre, in the pre-COVID world where we were seeing, particularly in the last two years or so, significant movement in at the state level, right, in terms of modernizing scope of practice and removing barriers. And parallel to that, we're seeing some good things happen with the Trump administration. Uh, the moves that they've made around uh, removing barriers to make a Medicare executive order from October mm-hmm. 3rd, we're, we're all providing, I think in my mind, a pretty compelling case in removing barriers for the full utilization of not just nurse anesthetists, but other non-physician advanced practice providers. And then you add COVID-19 into the picture. Right. And then the needs of the system become even more exigent and that, yeah, okay, what, tell me about this reimbursement policy at CMS for physician supervision of, of nurse anesthetists. That doesn't make sense. And it certainly doesn't make sense in the middle of the pandemic. And so when we were having conversations with HHS and CMS, and I was at the White House, as you know, and I had one-on-one conversations with Seema Verma, who is a CMS administrator, and, and Mike Pence, and uh, even had time with Donald Trump. And our feedback to them at that time was there's never been a more important time uh, to remove barriers. So the question is, as we hopefully in the near future start to ascend out of this, this crisis, what will the administration's position going to be on some of these temporary suspensions, particularly the physician supervision requirement? Uh, We've made a very strong case, and I think a very compelling case, uh, that that needs to be a permanent fix. That even in a post-COVID world, it doesn't make any sense, right? Now, we're going to see what, how these things play out, because as you may or may not know, we have a presidential election coming in November. Oh, <laughs> do so, we really? Yeah. <laughs> so, so and, I, and I'm not about to make predictions right now because I'm terrible at them. Uh, and, but we, we certainly know that with the, the prospect of a Biden administration, that we need to be cognizant of, of what's going to happen in that space and will they continue some of the great work that the Trump administration has done in removing barriers. And you can criticize, you know, I, I, you can, I'm sure there are people who who would criticize the the Trump and his administration. And I think that's fine. uh, But you can't look at uh, the moves that they made in deregulation in healthcare and, and particularly with nurse anesthetists, uh, either temporary or permanent and find much fault with that. Yeah, I agree, Randy. I mean, this uh, for for CRNAs, I think this is a, a wonderful time to kind of move forward, and especially as you look out and you look at all the economics behind this, and not only economics. I mean, we know that CRNAs are safe. We know that you deliver uh, wonderful care to your patients, but you're also the lowest cost provider. Um, mm-hmm. And ultimately, when you deliver care that is virtually the same as your physician counterparts and you cost a lot less, I mean, the economics of that, I don't, I don't know how you argue with that. Yeah, and, and one of the lines I, I like to use is in, in for the first time in healthcare delivery, common sense economics are starting to enter into the conversation in, in, a, in a big way. Yeah. And that it seemed like, you know, 
Sharon, you know, as well, you know, we'd have these conversations in Washington, D.C., or, you know, I was a hospital leader, too. So, I, you know, I was in, I was in hospital administration and, and we'd have these conversations and and they just did not make any sense from an economic or a quality outcome perspective. Well, now they're starting to make sense. Starting to make We're sense. starting to have people who are nodding their head during the conversations who understand that this country is in some big, pretty big trouble when it comes to health care and how we're going to pay for it. And they're open now more than ever to common sense approaches, including using CRNAs in the way they were educated and trained. Yeah. Well, Randy, you said something a minute ago, and I know we've got a hard stop. You're a busy, important man, and you've got something <laughs> else to, to go on to here. But, you know, it's just interesting to me how we can put in a temporary fix um, in a pandemic and think that it's okay during a pandemic when there are lives at stake every day probably more so than there is in a typical scenario and think, okay, these CRNAs can go out here unsupervised and perform the duties. But during times of a non-pandemic, you need to be supervised by a physician, anesthesiologist, yeah. which is, is just interesting to me. Um, the logic I, behind yeah, that. I, I would use the word convenient, right? So yes. I mean, the, 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 the perfect analogy in my mind is, so I was, uh, I think, as you know, I was deployed to Afghanistan. I provided right. combat casualty care Absolutely. to profoundly injured uh, servicemen and service women, And there wasn't an anesthesiologist there to watch me do it, right, or to right. tell me what to do. And you said, it, had, you said it best, Randy, watch you do it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, <laughs> was that a Freudian slip there? Yeah. <laughs> and and that, that's all well and good in a yeah. combat zone. But you come back to the United States and you go into some of these VAs, same patients. Yeah. Same, in many cases, the same CRNAs, and all of a sudden, hmm, we need supervision. And that seems really convenient to yeah. me that the, that they're both federal agencies. These are both veterans. Uh, you know, you, you know, the patients are, in many cases, the same ones, the same patients who received care downrange, and and all of a sudden, we're having conversations about physician supervision. Well, you know, whenever I lobby or talk to some of these legislators, I just to try and get them to understand, I will just say, just because I step across an imaginary line, which is a mm. state line, I can't do the same thing that I did yesterday. And my cue does not drop just because I step across that imaginary line. And, yeah. you know, they, they get that. But, you know, going back to the economics and the common sense, if nothing else, you've got to say that Trump is a businessman. So did he get it from that perspective when you were having your discussion? I think what is happening in Washington, D.C. on these issues is really coming out of uh, the people he, he's put in key policy positions, and particularly at Health and Human Services uh, with Alex Azar. And, and, and other agencies, too, mm -hmm. I, uh, where they, they definitely get it. Think about it, these are old school Republicans, right? They, they believe in competition. They believe in choice. They believe in deferring the states relative to scope of practice. And we believe in all those things, too. And so I think what is happening is, and I hopefully this will continue to happen and accelerate, is that these policies are being implemented in, in, in a way that really impacts health care. So I think that's probably what's happening. and. It's exciting to be part of it and, 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 and to, to make the best case we can to fix some of these issues. And, and we'll see how it plays out in the next few months. I, I, I feel good, but, you know, I, I'm not going to 
not going to spike the football or, or, or declare a win until, until we get there. Well, Randy, we know that you and your team are, are leading the charge for CRNAs out there, and we appreciate that, and thank you for it. And you, We know how hard you work every day for CRNAs, and, and just want to say thank you also for being on the show with us today. And um, you're, you're always a lot of wisdom and knowledge, and much appreciated. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure uh, to join you, too, and, and I want to congratulate you on the amazing work that you're doing. And to watch this thing take off is pretty exciting, and I'm glad we're working together on it, too. Absolutely. Thank you for your support, Randy. Well, Sharon, I think that uh, I think we'll wrap it up and let Randy get on to his next thing. I know. He's a busy man. He is. He is. Thank we you. Wanna, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to hear more, check us out on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review, but only if it's positive. There's enough <laughs> negativity out there. Until next time. It's a wrap. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.